that you do, if you can open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. And welcome to our 39th message in the Gospel of John. We have seven left after today. And as you guys are turning, it is good for me to be able to have my sister back with us after a little scare last week with a hockey puck. I, I told her that she could sit on the front row and there would be nothing flying at her, but she is still not quite there yet. So we'll, we'll let, her, let her stay where she is for now. But I tell you, I didn't, didn't know how much, uh, I was reminded how much I love my sister when I saw something bad happen and I couldn't do anything to fix it. So that was a, a bad Saturday last, last Saturday, but thank God for his grace and mercy. And as we just sang, his goodness, his goodness is so amazing and is running after us. To get going today, let me just frame it this way. Every classic movie adds music to heighten the suspense of the story. So even though we might not always know what's going on in the, the movie, you can tell by the crescendo in the music that you're reaching the high point of the movie. Well, we are getting very, very close in the Gospel of John to the pinnacle, the pinnacle moment of, of the Gospel of John. Jesus was within hours of facing the agony and the horror of the cross when he prayed what is without a doubt the most magnificent prayer ever to be prayed. Now in John 13 through 16, Jesus had given his disciples promises, assurances, and instructions. He promised them that he was going to prepare a place for them and he would come again and receive them to himself. He promised or kind of assured them, instructed them that in seeing him, they had seen the Father. He gave them assurance of answered prayer when they prayed in his name according to his will. He gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to live within all believers. So much so that Jesus said, it's to your benefit, it's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus explained to them the unique, the unique relationship that every believer as a branch has to him as the vine. And apart from him, we cannot do anything of eternal value. And then Jesus also had explained to them that believers are not of this world, but will face hatred from this world. Yet we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Therefore, sometime between the upper room teaching and Jesus's prayer and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offered this high priestly prayer. And this chapter has been called the, the mountain peak of Revelation. Here we are ushered into the very throne room of God. Here we eavesdrop on the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The veil is drawn back in this moment. We're admitted into the Holy of Holies. The secret place of the Most High God is opened for us. And here we need to remove our shoes. We need to listen and humble ourselves with reverent hearts because we are on some holy ground. We are on some, the holiest of all ground. And John 17 is, without a doubt, the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a second. Matthew 6 is the Lord's Prayer. No, Matthew 6 is the model prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It wasn't the prayer that Jesus himself would pray. It's the prayer that he taught us to pray. And how do I know that? Because Jesus offers something in that prayer that he would never pray. Father, forgive us of our trespasses. Jesus never had to pray that because he never sinned. Therefore, that was the prayer for us. Now, this prayer in John 17 is the prayer of his heart. This is the prayer to his Father. From this prayer, we can see the heart and mind of Jesus in his final hours. And this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture, 632 words. We can also call this the longest prayer because of the amount of time it covers, meaning this prayer stretches for over 2,000 years and will cover every single believer until Christ comes again. That's how long this prayer is. But now that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't pray longer prayers. Now, of course, he, he did. We know of occasions when we are told that Jesus spent all night praying to the Father. But when we think about prayer, Jesus began his ministry in prayer. He continued his ministry in prayer, and he closed his ministry in prayer. 
Even on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He prayed, into your hands, I commend my spirit. So much of what Jesus said on the cross was a prayer to the Father, yet there is something about this particular prayer. The, the great Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, this prayer is the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record, and we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship. So let's humbly dive in to this prayer, which offers us an opportunity to fill, to really fill the relationship between the Father and the Son, while at the same time to hear what was on the heart and mind of Jesus in his last moments right before his death. So we're going to read John 17, 1 through 26. I'm going to let you stay seated because we have a lot of reading to do, and I'm just going to believe that you're standing in your heart. So let's begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And as for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the word may believe, or the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we come to this word, this prayer of Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for your heart and your mind that is evident. Lord, help us to line, align our lives up with your heart, your mind. May your heart be our heart. May your mind be what's on our mind. Father, we just pray that you would lead us in this time by your truth. Sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that in Luke 11, when the disciples approached Jesus and wanted Jesus to teach them something, they didn't say, Jesus, teach us to preach. We want to go to your school of 
ministry. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to multiply food like you did so that we can have a constant all-you-can-eat buffet always before us. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to walk on water. That was really, really cool, and we'd love to do that every time we have a family picnic. They also didn't say, Lord, teach us to heal people. That would just be awesome for us to do. It's interesting that of all the things that they requested of Jesus to teach them, the only thing that we are told they asked Jesus to teach them was teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And why? My, my guess is that because they saw the powerful effects of prayer in Jesus' life. And if Jesus Christ thought it important to stay in contact with the Father often by prayer, where does that leave us? I mean, think about this. If Jesus knew the need for prayer in himself, how much greater is our need? How much greater is our need? And in this prayer, Jesus does something amazing because in verse 3, he defines for us eternal life. He says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, meaning that eternal life is literally knowing God now and forever. Eternal life isn't just one day when you die. It's knowing God, knowing Jesus right this moment. And this is one of ten times that eternal life is mentioned in the Gospel of John. I love the words of J.I. Packer who says this, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life? To know God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more and more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowing God. That's the whole point. Knowing him, knowing him now, knowing him forever. And in life, there exists a fundamental difference between knowing about something and literally knowing something. Seeing a picture of a safari can never do justice to the experience of coming upon a herd of elephants or catching a glimpse of, of giraffes on the horizon of the African savanna. In the same way, reading Oliver Twist is not the same as experiencing life as an orphan. Even watching Saving Private Ryan does not truly communicate the, the horrors and the heroism that existed at Normandy. Can't even come close. And there is a Essential and marked distinction between knowing about something and knowing something. And nothing is more eternally beneficial and majestic than knowing God. And brothers and sisters, we are able to know him. Yet, unfortunately, hear this. Many who say they know God live in continual disregard of God. Many who say they know him never think about him. Many who say they know him never talk about him. Many who say they know him never read his words. Many who say they know him never pray and talk to him. Even though the Bible tells us that he is an infinite and unfathomable abyss of glory and joy and truth. Scripture says that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Why would we not want to be in his presence? John 17 is often broken up in three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his 11 remaining disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the church. And that is basically our outline today. So let's dive in. Number one, Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus prayed for himself. Look on the screen. Verse 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Verse 4, I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is acknowledging here that he has existed forever. He has eternally existed. But it might strike us strange that Jesus opens this prayer by praying for himself and not just praying for himself, but asking God to glorify him. So why would Jesus do that? And can we pray that prayer? Now, here's the, the difference. Jesus says, Father, glorify me so that I might in turn glorify you. Every time the spotlight was placed on Jesus, Jesus pointed it back to the Father every single time. The problem with us is when the spotlight comes on us, we bask in it. We, we like the feeling of the spotlight. And we sometimes forget about the one that we are to reflect back to. Jesus never did. 
He glorified the Father in every situation. And even here, he's saying, glorify me so that I can continue, even until my death, glorify you. Well, you see, the story of the Bible is a story of humanity's quest for glory. Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden, the place of God's glory, because of their sin, rebellion, and disobedience. And from that point on, the grand story of the Bible is a story of humanity's longing, yearning search for the glory of God. The glory is seen and enjoyed from time to time throughout the the Bible's history, we see it on Mount Sinai, we see it in the tabernacle, we see it in Solomon's temple. Moses and Isaiah both catch a glimpse of God's glory, yet it was a fleeting glimpse and also a terrifying glimpse. As the story of the Bible moves forward, there's a repeated promise of God's people, again, beholding and dwelling in the midst of God's glory. We know that that is a future promise, but we also know that in John 1.14, we are told the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's dwelling with us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus showed the glory of God, meaning, listen, God loves glory. God loves glory. He loves his son. God loves glory. The glory of God is such a dominant theme in the Bible that you could say that our whole lives exist for his glory. God exists. God exists. He delights to be known and be enjoyed. And God's love for his glory means that he is going to reveal himself to us. He's going to make himself known to us. And this is the beauty of who God is. He is a revealing God. He makes himself known to us. And eight times in this prayer, Jesus uses the word glory. It's all about glory. But don't miss it. Jesus knows where he's headed. So Jesus glorified the Father through his miracles. Jesus glorified the Father through his teachings. But the greatest glory that we brought to the Father would come through the suffering and death of Jesus. This is what he is praying for in this moment. God, glorify me in and through the cross. From the human standpoint, the cross was a revolting display of the sins of man. Yet from a different point of view, the cross revealed the and magnified the grace and the glory of our God. Through the suffering of Jesus came life for us. And that is the glory of God. It's the glory of God that we are saved. It's to his glory. So Jesus prayed for himself. But then secondly, Jesus prayed for the 11 remaining disciples. So Jesus prayed for his 11 remaining disciples. The bulk of this prayer is spent on the 11 remaining ones. And in verse 11, Jesus prayed for their unity. In verses 11 and 12, he prayed for their safety. In verse 13, he prayed for their joy. In verse 15, he prayed that they would be protected from the evil one. In verse 17, he prayed for their purity or sanctification. In verse 18, he prayed for their mission. They would give themselves to the mission that he has given them. Yet here is where I want to drill down. Jesus prayed. If we look at verses 15 through 18, you'll see those uh, verses on the screen. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus prays that the disciples will be kept in the midst of the world. There's a few different ways that this word world is used in the Bible. Sometimes when the word world is used, it speaks of creation. So God created the world, the environment, the physical planet that we live on and in. Well, that's not how it is used here. Sometimes the Bible refers to the world as the world of humanity, the world of, the world of mankind. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Well, did God give his son to a planet? No, God gave his son to a people, for a people. Jesus died not for fish and trees, although Romans 8 speaks of uh, redemption that's coming for the world. He died for us, for image bearers, that we would be restored to our image bearing capabilities and we would be redeemed. But there's a third way, and it's the most frequent way that the word world or cosmos is used. And that is an ordered system of worldly thinking and values. So the the word cosmos means an arranged order here. 
So the world is an arranged order. So this world is an arranged order where Satan is the god of this world. He is the god of this age. And there are human beings that are a part of this system that don't love God. They hate God. They hate Christians. And they hate the values of God. So think about this. We are living in a physical world. We are surrounded by a human world that is also filled with a spiritual worldview that is against the view and values of God. And there are three approaches that we can take to this world. One is isolation. We can just isolate ourselves from the world altogether and just stay away from the world. The second is assimilation. We can just become like the world and just believe everything the world believes. Or third, we can give ourselves to mission, to the mission that we have been given by our Savior. And this is very important because for centuries, Christians have read scriptures as indicating that because the world is dangerous and a wicked place, we ought to keep as far from it as possible. Therefore, we build walls around the church. We build walls around our house and we tell the world, keep out. And what we are doing is basically what we're saying is what we do here is just for us. And you are bad. We are good. And we are given this picture if we're not careful to to the world around us and of course please hear this we must not fall in love with this world we must not to get too immersed in this world would be like i think about our last plane trip when we went from here to new york and we had a two and a half hour layover in new york then go into india what would have happened that two and a half hour layover if i went to the bathroom in the new york airport and i go in the bathroom i'm like man this place is a dump and i just started ordering supplies and said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, and just refurbish this bathroom. I'm just going to go ahead and fix this bathroom on up. Robert and Morgan have been like, what are you doing? Like, we're only here for two hours. No, 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 no. This bathroom is, is terrible. I need to make it better than it is. And they would be like, but we're only going to be here for another 45 minutes. Like, what are you doing brothers and sisters oftentimes if we're not careful we forget that this world is not our home we're just passing through we're just passing through how forgetful we are you see the the position of a christian in this world is like the same position of an astronaut in space space is not the, the natural habitat for an astronaut if if the astronaut is up there, he's going to need special protection in order to survive up there. In the same way for a scuba diver, the water is not the natural habitat for the scuba diver. In order to survive, you need something that will help you survive. So unless we realize our position in the world, but not of the world, we're going to get swallowed up by the world. You see, it's okay for a boat to be in the water, but when the water gets in the boat, you have problems. It's okay, and even it's It's God's doing that we are in this world. But when the world gets in us, we are going to have problems. And I love what Jesus does here because Jesus says, I don't take them out of this world. Jesus says, I'm not taking them out of it. I'm leaving them in this world. Jesus keeps us here for a reason. But here's the problem. Brothers and sisters, we get too comfortable here. In fact, I want to dare you to pray a prayer this week. I want to double, triple dog dare you to pray this prayer every single day. I dare you to pray this prayer every day to pray. Ask God this. God, make me useful or take me home. Make me useful, God, or take me home. The problem is, brothers and sisters, we're not useful and we don't desire home. But when God begins to make us useful here, we'll begin to pray more, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Because we'll remember even more, this is not our home. I dare you to pray that this week. God, make me useful today or take me home. Oh, that God wants to make us useful in this world. God keeps us in this world because this world is our mission. Hear this. The world around us needs us. The world around us needs the Savior that we have, needs the light that we offer, needs the salt that we are. But let me throw something else at you. Not only does the world need us, hear this, we need the world. Now, you might be saying, well, how do we need the world? Well, I'm glad you asked. Years ago, 
the codfish industry in the Pacific Northwest was getting big and people wanted to export codfish all over the country. So they decided they would catch the codfish, they would kill them, freeze them, send them to the buyers. But the problem is codfish is a delicate fish and it loses its flavor when it's frozen and shipped. So of course they didn't like the product. So they tried something else. They took the codfish and they sent them alive in tanks and seawater and preserved them. But when they served the fish, the fish had lost all of its firmness. So they weren't firm. They were kind of very fatty. Finally, they, they figured out what was wrong and they started shipping these containers of codfish, but they put in this same container the natural enemy of the codfish, the catfish. So as these codfish are sent all over the country, they are, bless their hearts, chased every mile of the way by the catfish. Poor little things. But here's the deal. It kept them firm and tasty. Now, what in the world is the point? Here's the point. If we are in this world, but we aren't in this word, we are going to become like this world, and we're going to be tasteless. We're going to be tasteless. We're not going to have any value to the world when we become like the world. But in the same way, if we're in this word, but we refuse to go into the world, we're going to just get fat and sassy. We're just going to get fat, and all we're going to do is care about our opinions and shining light on other, on other lighthouses as if we're doing something. No, that is not the, the point. The point is we need a little bit of chasing. We need a little bit of resistance. And living out the life of Christ in the midst of a contrary world will make sure that and guarantee Christian fitness. We need the world to chase us a little bit so that we can stay fit and, and continue to see our need for him. And don't miss where Jesus ends here in verse 18. Jesus says, as you have sent me, I send them. Listen, God is a sending God. God sent his son to the world. God sent his spirit to the church. And God is sending us into his world. This is what God has done. And before we move on, let's look at verse 17 together. I want you to look in your Bibles, if you have them, at verse 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples and for us these words. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus prays for sanctification for his disciples, but here's the question. What is the sanctification that Jesus is talking about here? And here it means to separate or to set apart for a specific purpose or to put to its intended use. You know, guys, right now, you guys are sanctifi sanctifying these pews. You're sanctifying these church pews because you are using them for their intended purpose. So these pews are meant to hold your bottoms. That, that is what they are meant to do. And so you are sanctifying the pews even right now. Well, in the same way, in the same way, what's our purpose? And our purpose is we are meant by God to display the glory of God to the world around us. We are meant to show forth God's glory to our world. That is our intended purpose. And when we become instruments of God, we are sanctified. Yet that's just one side of sanctification. The other side is this. Sanctification is also becoming more and more like Jesus. So we become more and more like him. So here's the question. How does that happen? How do we become more and more like Jesus? How do we become more and more useful for his purposes, and Jesus tells us his word. Sanctify them by the truth, in the truth, your word is truth. If we want to grow more and more like Jesus, get in the word. If we want to have more and more of an effect in this world and be useful, get in the word. In fact, I, I read this, this quote this week, and I tried to, to find who wrote it, and I could not find who uh, was the author of it, so I'm going to say it a few more times, and I'm going to start taking credit for it from here on out. But it is this. This book contains the mind of God, the doom of sinners, the way of salvation, and the eternal joy of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its commands are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are unchanging. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It, it contains light to direct you, 
food to nourish you, and comfort to cheer you. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand object, our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully, and intentionally. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word, O oh God, is true. So Jesus prayed for his 11 disciples. And then number three, Jesus prayed for all future disciples. He prayed for all future disciples. Look at verse 20. Or you see on the screen, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus prayed for those who would come to faith because of the testimony of the disciples, which means that Jesus was praying for who? Us. Jesus was praying for us. Within hours of facing the cross, and Jesus still had you and me on his mind and heart. And here's the good news. Not only did Jesus pray for us, according to Romans 8 and according to Hebrews 7, Jesus is still praying for us. He continues to pray for you and for me. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus' prayers are always answered. His prayers are always answered. And one of the main things that Jesus prays for here, don't miss this, is our unity. The unity of the church. And unity doesn't mean that we always agree on everything. Unity means that we come together for the sake of the mission. It means that we always pull in the same direction. Meaning, when we have disagreements about what the Bible says in secondary matters, we humbly continue to study the word together so that we might be sanctified. Now, when we have disagreements about what the Bible says on primary issues concerning God, the Trinity, salvation, Christ alone, the word of God, then we, in love and humbly, correct and point to the truth always. When we have disagreements about our personal opinions, hear this, we cast our opinions aside for the sake of the mission. Let me hear you, hear me say this again. Lay down your opinions. Because, hear this, your opinions can't save anyone. Let me tell you what your opinions can do. Your opinions can keep people from being saved. But they can't save anyone. Your opinions can sometimes be a stumbling block to people coming to see the true gospel because we're so in love with our opinions. Listen, what unites us is greater than what divides us. Therefore, lay your opinions down and pick up the gospel. Pick up the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. The problem is most of the time when we hear the word unity, we always think uniformity. That we must look alike, talk alike, act alike, vote alike. Yet that's not what Jesus had or has in mind. How do I know that? Because when Jesus died, he would unite the Jews and the Gentiles. And in uniting them, it didn't mean that they thought alike. They came from two different places. They would never see the world the same way. But what united them? What united them was the one who saved them and the mission that he gave them. So what united them was Jesus and the mission that Jesus gave them or called them to. And please hear this, brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, the local church can become united by the wrong things. Mainly, if we're not careful, we, be we can become united by our love for, hear this, ourselves. We can have a love for ourselves, and we, be we can become united around that. There was once an old church in, in England that had a beautiful building and had a great purpose or mission statement. And they put this statement everywhere and they had this huge sign right outside their church and it says this we preach christ crucified straight from the word of god straight from the mouth of paul yet over time ivy that was growing around the building began to grow on this sign and over time the last word was obscured so the sign now just said we preach christ and that's still a pretty awesome purpose let's preach christ but as you can imagine 
The ivy kept growing, and pretty soon all it said was, we preach. Well, I mean, like, what do you preach? Maybe curiosity got the best of people, see what you're talking about, but of course you know the rest. Eventually, preach went away, and the only word that was left was we. And that church soon died. Listen, any church that turns inward and makes it about we, me, us, mine, not only will die, it's already died. If we make it about us, it's not about dying, we're already dead. Because we're making it about something that has no life within ourselves. Our only hope as a church is not to point people to us, but to the one who has saved us. The one who has done all for us. And don't miss it. The church is God's plan A for working in the world. This is what Jesus had on his heart and mind just hours before his death. And by the way, if you're one of those that you still think, well, I refuse to get too involved in the church because the church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Please hear this. Jesus, more than anybody, knew how messed up the church would be. In fact, he picked Peter, you know, the disciple with the foot-shaped hole in his mouth. It was always saying the wrong things. In fact, at one time, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, when Jesus calls you Satan, that's not good. Like, that's not good at all. At the same time, Jesus or James and John were part of this group. Now, James and John, the sons of thunder, they wanted to call down fire and kill a whole nation. They were also always arguing about who was going to be number one. We want to be first. Thomas was also in this group, the one who would not believe, the doubting one. Listen, Jesus knew the church would be messed up, yet he died to build it, and he still prays for it. So please hear this. Stop trying to be holier than Jesus. Stop trying to be holier than him by the way you judge the church. Instead, do what he does and pray for it. Pray for it. Jesus knows all the messed up people in the church, and Jesus doesn't turn his back on us. Instead, he turns his face toward us. That is the beauty of our Savior. Oh, we need Jesus, and don't miss this. We need each other. We need each other. And I want to end with verse 24. If you can look at verse 24 with me, it says this. If I had, I mean, I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we go. I knew that didn't sound right. Father, there we go. I desire that they, meaning who's he praying for? That they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And where was Jesus going? Brothers and sisters, in this picture, this prayer now brings us to the very gates of heaven. The very gates of heaven. Jesus wants us. He wants us to be with him. Can you imagine that? Jesus wants us to share his glory. Jesus wants us to be with him forever and ever and ever. In fact, if you keep reading verse 24 and along the whole prayer, Jesus basically says that his followers are God's gift to him. That's crazy to think about. Jesus saying, the church, God, they're your gift to me. We're, we are God's gift to Jesus. Are you talking about a dud? I mean, that's like getting socks for Christmas. That's what Jesus gets in getting us. So, not just socks for Christmas, but socks with holes in them. For, I mean, underwear that somebody else has worn is what we are as a gift to Jesus. And yet, Jesus is excited about the gift because, hear this, he wants us. He wants us, but here's the question, and this is when we need to get really, really serious. Do we want him? Do we want him? I'm reminded of a, one of my favorite and probably it is the hardest and smack in the face quotes that I've ever read by John Piper. And we're going to put it on the screen and let's just listen to what he says. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? 
Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, that is the heaven that many professing Christians have made. You hear them talk about family reunions and all these different things, but guess what they never mention? Jesus. And if you die and you go somewhere and Jesus isn't there, newsflash, it's not heaven. It's hell. Anything apart from Jesus. And you might say, well, it might be nice with all those things. Well, if you're still in your sin, we will mess it all up because guess what? We've done it here. Anything apart from him, brothers and sisters, isn't heaven. Do we want him? Do we want his glory? Do we know him? Will we surrender ourselves to his mission? Will we lay down our opinions for the sake of the gospel? Let me end this way. The things that Jesus prayed for before his death should be the things that we still pray for now. Meaning is what was on the heart of Jesus on our hearts now. Oh, it should be. Do we want his glory? Brothers and sisters, since John, since we went over John 12 and Jesus praying in his midst of trouble, saying, Father, glorify your name, that has been my prayer. When things are great, Father, glorify your name. When I've had difficult days, and there have been many, Father, glorify your name, even in these difficulties. Do we want his glory? Have we accepted his mission? Do we understand that we are kept in this world for this world? And will we unite and pull in the same direction for the mission that Jesus has given to us? Oh, that we would. Oh, that we are. Oh, that we will. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, and we're going to call the the band down as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, we come before you whose heart we just heard for glory, the glory of the Father through the crucifixion, for the mission that you have given to the disciples and to us. And we thank you that the disciples kept your mission because the word made it to us. We pray that we would keep the mission and take the word to others. And Lord, unite us together. Help us, Lord, to pull in the same direction. To understand, God, that we will never be united by all of our opinions. We can only be united by the gospel and the mission of what you have called us to and what you have done for us. May that be our uniting place. May we stay there in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Have your way in this time together today. Whatever you're calling us to do, Lord, make us obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.
Second of all, I went to Ecuador as part of the board for Peyton Ministries, and one of the ministries that they're working on is Andres, the lead Ecuadorian. His father is retiring from 30 years of working in the government, assisting the folks of Ecuador with learning how to grow crops. So he, uh, Gary asked him if he would come help in the, the post, and his dad came up with the idea that he's going to provide uh, families in different communities where Peyton Ministries always ministers, already ministers, excuse me, with the seedlings and the knowledge to make their own pesticide, their own fertilizer, and grow their own crops to feed their families. And then secondary, if they have extra, they can take it to market and sell it. So as part of that, um, I agreed to come back and speak to Micah and the finance team and ask that we would be able to contribute $1,200. Um, that would be for one year to help. It's not the whole amount. North Jacks is also part of it because one of their members is on the board as well. However, I said we would try to commit to $1,200. And lo and behold, in Sunday school, somebody already came up with a commitment for $100 of that. So um, I'm asking for support, if you will. Anybody that is interested can see myself or Faith. You can make that out, specify it to the, uh, the project in Ecuador, which would help families not only sustain themselves, but also raise money for their families. Because remember, we don't, as we said in Sunday school, we don't go to the Amelia Views or the Capes in Ecuador. We go to the poly towns and the areas that are less fortunate. Um, so the point of that being not to make fun of poly town or anything else, but that we are going to places where people need help. And that's why we're doing it. So anyways, if you make a check, please make it to First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. If you want to give cash, see myself or Faith. We'll see that to you, Faith. But anyways, so thank you so much for your support. And remember, pray for... June, because 12 of us are going to load back up and go to Ecuador and spend time in the Bible study. Thank you. So as the Lord leads, also remember, before we say our verse together again, I dare, I dare us to live our lives each day by praying, Lord, use me or take me home. I think if we prayed that prayer in a minute, I think the world would be on guard and would watch out because things would begin to happen. Oh, that God would use us. Let's, let's us recite our verse together for the week. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. We are dismissed.